All right, Matthew 4. Turn to Matthew 4. And Megan, give us 1 through 11, please. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this is one of the coolest um, fulfillment typology texts in the Gospels, in the ministry of Jesus. Because especially as you think about it in the context of Matthew's Gospel, which we said was written first or primarily to a Jewish audience, so they're going to be thinking in Old Testament terms. They're going to be thinking in the Exodus, the New Moses, the Second Adam, all of these Old Testament, what we call motifs, these ideas or concepts are already top of mind for them because this is their religion. That is their uh, covenant, so to speak. And the scriptures identify the Lord Jesus as the true Israel of God all throughout this gospel, that Jesus does what the first Adam failed to do, that Jesus is the new and the better Moses, that Jesus is the faithful son compared with the nation Israel, which is God's unfaithful son. And you see that in really big picture ways in the gospel, but you also see it in a bunch of little tiny details. And this text is filled with a bunch of those little tiny details. So when God delivered Israel from captivity, when God freed them from bondage, no sooner had God brought his son, Israel, out of Egypt and through the waters, right? what happens after that? Where does Israel go after they freed from Egypt and they passed through the waters of the Red Sea? The desert, the wilderness. And so what happens to Jesus here? No sooner does he go through the waters. What kind of waters? Baptism. Baptism, That Jesus goes into what? The wilderness. wilderness. What is the, the test that Israel gets in the wilderness? Will we trust God to give us what we need? Food, water, Freedom from their enemies? Will they trust God? Even Moses fails this test. The water from the rock incident, right? Even Moses fails the test of, will I completely trust God to provide for me the way God said he would provide for me? That's the specific test that Israel gets in the wilderness. So when you look at uh, 
Jesus' experience here, he goes up out of Egypt. He goes into the waters of baptism. The spirit drives him into the wilderness and he is tested by God through the temptations of the evil one not to trust God. That, that is, I mean, you, you just could not paint a closer story between these two things. Um, and so the, the, the typology here, the fulfillment kind of language is pretty incredible. Um, now, there's something else interesting about this. That's if you think of Jesus through the lens of Moses, which is intentional and very important. But think for a moment of Jesus through the lens of Adam. What was Adam supposed to do? Be faithful, right? Obey God, right? What was the context, the situation into which Adam was placed to do that? A garden. A garden that had absolutely everything that he needed. A garden that was perfect and orderly and there for him to work. Adam had every advantage toward completing his mission of being faithful to God. Now, the second Adam comes, and what does he get? The wilderness with no water and no food and the devil there to provide the same temptation as in the garden. Jesus has none of the advantages that Adam had, and yet Jesus would be faithful anyway. So this carries exactly the same structure from the temptation of Adam, the temptation of Israel, now into the temptation of Jesus. Um, Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil when she allowed herself to believe that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Israel in the wilderness gave in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are all direct quotations from the Exodus experience. Um, When the devil came to tempt Jesus, the last Adam in true Israel, he did so with temptations that corresponded to the temptations he used in the garden and in the wilderness with Israel. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh, that's verse 3, the lust of the eyes, verses 8, 9, and 10, and the pride of life, verses 5 and 6. Exactly the same temptations. Um, the, the, what's called the protological son, Adam, and the typological son, Israel, both disobeyed. And yet Jesus, the eschatological son, the fulfillment of the son, obeyed and was faithful. Um, so this is great. The, it's also interesting that um, the scriptures to which Jesus appeals in battling these temptations, three times Satan tempts Jesus. Three times Jesus fights back. With what? With God's word. So on the simple level, we say, okay, this teaches believers to take up God's word when we're tested by the evil one, and that's a good thing. However, there's something much more profound here. Um, Jesus appeals to the book of Deuteronomy, the, le- the book that summarizes the lessons that God taught his people in the time of the wilderness. And so he took, yes, he took the exact truths that God gave Israel and used those to persevere through this temptation and this challenge. It's not like Jesus took some secret knowledge that wasn't available to them. It's not like Jesus took some extra thing that he was going to teach them now in his ministry. He quotes the exact words they had and uses those words to resist the temptations and to avoid falling into sin. That's why that passage is so exciting, because the temptation of Jesus is so clearly preparing the reader 
who knows their Old Testament, that Jesus is going to do exactly what Adam failed to do, exactly what Moses and what Israel failed to do. Um, Questions about that or something you were looking for from that text that I didn't answer? I think it's a fascinating, another one of those things that uh, the, the one that Satan chooses to quote, where he talks about the heel of the Messiah. Why is he worried about the Messiah's heel and striking yeah. it? Because it's going to crush his head. Yeah. There's nothing Satan would like more than for that heel to be destroyed preemptively. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. John? Uh, just the last temptation, that, that's a legit offer. Like, Satan had the power to give Jesus that. It's a legit offer in as much as Satan has control over, he was offering that. Yeah. Now, he's Satan. He's the father of all lies. So whether or not he'll keep his deal, I could not tell you. <laughs> I've always wondered, so it says the Spirit led him yeah. to the temptation. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Mm-hmm. Is there any, like, does God lead us and we're asking him not to? Or we're, So we, uh, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, which we'll get to in a little bit, it's certainly the sense of... Uh, God, you can do a lot of things with my life uh, that are not wrong. You, you leading me into temptation is not wrong, right? God, God strengthens us and sharpens us. He puts us in the world. His sovereign will makes it so that we're around all sorts of temptations. What you're saying in the Lord's Prayer is, I would do better as a Christian if you do less of that. It would be easier for me, God, to be faithful if I had less temptation rather than more. So lead me not into temptation. Does that help? Yeah, the Spirit definitely led Jesus into the wilderness. In the same, I mean, uh, similar to what happens in Job, similar to what happens in other cases in the Bible, where uh, God, it's one of these tough phrases that you want to nuance. When people say, God never gives you more than you can bear, is that true or false? False, false, false. false. Yeah, it's right. Like our first answer has to be it's false. Um, I am the vine; you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do how many? What? Nothing. How many things? No things. Apart from me, you can do no things. So, in our fallen condition, in our flesh, anything that God gives us, we cannot bear. There is no temptation that we can resist. Everything God gives us is more than we can bear, which is entirely to teach us to become utterly dependent upon God. Through Christ, who gives me strength, I can do how many things? All the things, right? All things. Apart from him, I can do no things. Through Christ, who gives me strength, I can do all things. Does Christ give me more than I can bear? Yes, until I am doing things in his strength rather than my own, and then I can do all things. And that's how it is with temptation, is uh, God will put us in situations where we will fail with anything other than complete reliance upon him. And I think that's such a tough thing for people that aren't Christians that hear that more than I can, right? He won't give me more than I can, and just will sort of like interpret think, oh my Lord. He's, he's going to overwhelm me. Why, right. why is he going to give me what can I handle? I can't handle anything. He, that is exactly, and that's what we're saying. <laughs> is he will give us every ounce of strength to do every single thing that he calls us to do. And when you really, really, really can't do something and you come to the end of yourself and you rely entirely upon him and you still can't do that thing, God's not calling you to do that thing. That's like, it's, it's that simple. Uh, it's not simple to experience. Right. It's that simple on a, on a whiteboard. 
All right, Matthew 6. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Who's got 5 through 15? And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The context matters a lot for the Lord's Prayer, because what what Jesus is doing is giving a broad instruction on effective prayer and ineffective prayer. And notice that his emphasis on what makes a prayer effective or ineffective is not focused on the words that you say in the prayer. And sometimes we read the Lord's Prayer and we think, oh, he's showing us the perfect model prayer. Everything we pray has to fit this model and this outline because that was Jesus's focus was a perfect prayer looks like this. But that's not Jesus's focus. Jesus's focus is what's the difference between an effective prayer and an ineffective prayer. And when he answers that question, he doesn't focus on the words of the prayer. He focuses on the prayer, the one praying it. Do not be a hypocrite. Do not pray for show. Do not pray for forgiveness if you cannot forgive, right? That's Jesus's focus is the heart of the prayer. And in the context of talking about effective and ineffective prayers, yes, he gives an example. He says, an effective prayer looks like this (laughs) from the heart. and, And even after that, he says, but if you do not forgive others, their trespasses, don't bother saying this prayer if the prayer is not right not right with God. Um, So it's not a magic chant. It's instructive about the conditions of our hearts for how we ought to pray. Now, because Jesus does give us these words, there is extra value in them, not for being a magic chant, but for being instructive. These are good words to pray. Number one, they're good words to pray together. Because it is really cool for God's people to be able to pray together, not just all of us having our heads bowed and one person speaking for us. That's valuable when one of the elders pray or in prayer meeting when we're together and we go around and pray. That's valuable. But there's something experientially valuable about actually praying together. The words that we say are the same and we're lifting up our hearts and our voices in unison with prayer before God. And so that's a great use of the Lord's Prayer. That's why we do it in our service. We were praying together when the elder was the only one speaking. But saying the Lord's Prayer together is that visible and audible reminder, oh yeah, that's what we're doing. I'm not just a spectator for somebody else's prayer. I am with them in prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer can be used that way. Another great way to use the Lord's Prayer is when you can't pray anything else. When your mind is not at rest, when your heart or spirit is broken, 
when words are far from you because the grief is too much to bear or the anger is overwhelming rational thought, pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray. You, you know these words are safe. They're not magic, but they're safe and they're true and they're a good thing. And as you get to that, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us or in the, the actually slightly technically better theological reading, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, that's a good way for us to kind of ease out of that other emotion when it's anger uh, back into something more helpful. Um, the goal of prayer is to generate change. All prayer exists to generate change. Where we get hung up is that we want to use prayer to change circumstances, and God wants to use prayer to change us. Now, God often does use prayer to change circumstances, and we should pray for circumstances to change. We should pray for safe travel. We should pray for healthy delivery of babies. We should pray for specific circumstances. But we should know that the effectiveness of a prayer is not measured in whether or not we get the circumstantial outcome we were looking for. The effectiveness of the prayer is whether it drawed us closer to God, changed our hearts away from ourselves, our desires, more toward God and God's will. That's why we can say, thy will be done. And that's why we can know if there's anything that we pray for that gets us in that zone of aligning with God's will and humility, it will be answered. Ask and it will be given. Um, So that is a tremendous benefit of prayer. Um, And the next text, incidentally, after the Lord's Prayer, all about forgiveness. It's it's, uh, when we just read. Uh, if you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses as well. One other interesting thing about this prayer is uh, how often in the New Testament Jesus refers to God in prayer as Father. And Jesus teaches us to pray as he prays. If you think about it theologically... Um, Why do you have access to God at all? Because of Christ. Because of your union with Christ. So the fact that you are united to Christ in faith is the reason that you're invited into the throne room of God. It's the reason why you can come boldly before the throne of grace. So therefore, you should address God the way Jesus addresses God in prayer. You are there with Jesus, united to him. And so that's why when we pray, and this may sound persnickety, um, I understand, but there's, there's a reason why this is what we do. That's why when you pray, we don't address our prayers to Jesus. We address our prayers to the Father. We are united with Jesus, addressing the Father. So that's why our prayers should begin to God our Father. And if you want to get real nitpicky, and again, this is not to pick on your prayers. This is just to help you think through what we're actually doing in prayer. If we, 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 and let me just say one other thing before I get into details. God is not going to refuse to hear your prayer because you got your words wrong. Okay. The wrong address does not invalidate your prayer. The wrong salutation does not invalidate your prayer. It does not make God angry with you. But it's the question of how can I pray better? Well, I can pray better by being more thoughtful about what I'm saying in prayer and how I'm saying this. So this is not to pick on you. This is to encourage you to think thoughtfully about prayer. That's why when we talk uh, kids about prayer requests in there 
and we say we want little requests, right? God cares about skin knees. God cares about our pets. God cares about these logistics of our lives. But we also want you, because we're elders and pastors and parents training you up, we want you to think about both. We want you to think not just about small things and bring those to God. We want you to also think about big things, big things. Um, and so when we pray, we want to have both in our prayers and we want to think about both. Um, but back to the address thing for a minute. So if we're addressing God as father, which we should do at the start of our prayer, and then we say our prayer, and then sometimes for shorthand, we will say a lot, in your name, we pray. All right, let's be persnickety for a minute. Is that accurate? not accurate because we don't pray in the name of the father. We pray to the father in the name of the son, because that's the name by which we can boldly approach the throne of grace. So we pray in Jesus name. And we see that in the Lord's prayer as well. This idea that Jesus is presenting himself before the father. And that's the way we come before the father is united to Christ. So we pray to the father under the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son. We have these great Trinitarian themes within our prayers. And that's why within our worship service, we start and end. We view our service, our elder views our service as one big long prayer. We try to have a flow of the service that is the flow of a prayer. And so we start with the praise of God. That's the invocation. There is no God like you. And by the way, what we're about to do, we can't do without you. So won't you come be with us? Won't you give us the power to do this? And then in the service, we confess our sins and remember that those sins are forgiven in Christ. And then we hear from God. God, what do you have to say to us? And God speaks. And then we come to the Lord's table and God feeds us from his table. And then we offer uh, God's blessing on you, not based on your behavior, but just because God loves to bless his people. And so that's the benediction. But have you ever noticed how does our service start and how does it end? Triune name, triune name. Whose name do I greet you in at the beginning of every service? I greet you in the name of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. We start the service in the triune name of God. And how do we end the service? What's the last thing we sing? Some doxology that is always Trinitarian. We have four of them that we rotate now, but every one of them is Trinitarian. We're going to sing in praise to God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit as we depart. Why? This. Just a word, just a translation thing. Yeah. Same with the Lord's Prayer, death and trespasses. Yeah, it's um, right. <laughs> Debts is better. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great question. We, I think most of us grew up with trespasses or sins, right? Most of us did not grow up with debts. Why do we use debts? We use debts because it conveys something theologically that is very, very important. Our problem is not just, I committed a sin and I need God to overlook that sin. My problem is, I committed a sin that has a consequence. The consequence is death. I have a debt to God. And the only way that debt can be fulfilled is death. What I need God to to do for me is not just forgive my sin. I need him to take care of my debt. 
I need to be released from my obligation to God because that obligation is death. And that's what we're asking God to do. And that's what God's requiring us to do to others. And we can chuckle about that, right? Like, I I don't generally kill people for sinning against me. You want to. (laughs) You have that hate in your heart toward those who've sinned against you, which Jesus equates with murder. And so what we're to do is to release people from that debt as we ask God to release us from our own. Yeah, so it's a great question. Yeah, it it is a word thing. And on all this stuff, let me just be, I know you know this, but let me say it just to make sure I'm very clear. Don't argue with people about this stuff. Don't be the obnoxious persnickety person. If it's a confrontational conversation, I don't care about the difference between in your name and in Jesus' name. I care about the fact that they're praying and I want to love my brother or sister in Christ. If it's a confrontational conversation or if it's going to be perceived as as rude and nitpicky, I'm not going to argue about debts. I'm going to say trespasses or sins or whatever they ask me to pray. It's better that I pray in union with my brother and sister in Christ. But when we get to talk openly, theologically, in a non-offensive way, Way, not about right and wrong, right. but what's better? How do I raise the bar on what I'm doing? Then we can talk about this kind of stuff. All right, Matthew 7. Uh, Pam, do you have 7, 1, one through 6, please? Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log? that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Least they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Thank you. So you may be asking yourself, if you've been in our church a while, well, why would somebody submit this passage? Paul did teach on judging when he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. I've preached on judging twice in the last two years when I've gotten to passages, but that's not the passage that was submitted. The passage that was submitted was, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to you and attack you. But that verse must be read in the context of what comes before it. And so that's why we had to read what's before it. So the quick refresher on judging. Uh, The non-Christian's favorite Bible verse is Matthew 7, 6, right? Judge not lest you be judged. What the non-Christian hasn't read and really doesn't want to talk about is verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. How do I know who's a pig And who's a dog? I have to judge. It's not possible to do not throw pearls before swine if you don't first discern, judge someone to be in the category that Jesus is talking about here. So... Uh, In the same way, Jesus, a couple of passages after this, will talk about teachers. And he will say, how do you figure out who's a good teacher and who's a false teacher? You judge them by their fruit. So when Jesus talks about judging here and he says, judge not lest you be judged, it's a much more complex discussion than just don't ever do it. Because then he turns around and tells you to do it. What he's saying is, don't do it this way and do do it that way. And the way not to do it is with self-righteousness, 
where you think that there are no logs in your eyes and only logs in other people's eyes. The ways to do it are to judge by God's standard of what actually is sin and righteousness rather than your standard of what is preference and favorite and annoyance. 75% of the judgment my children receive from me is judgment on whether or not dad's annoyed. Right? That's not right. That's exactly what God calls us not to do, to judge the world by our level of annoyance. But it is our temptation to do that. Um, So Jesus is saying all this stuff about how to judge well versus how to judge poorly. And then in that context, he says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in this context, what does that mean? (laughs) Who deserves the truth? So in one sense, we can broadly say everyone deserves truth, right? But Jesus nuances that a little bit here. And he says... Not everyone deserves the truth in every moment. When does wisdom and godliness say, I won't tell you the truth? When they're going to use that truth to turn around and trample you underfoot and attack you. When they will trample the truth to do violence both to the truth And to you, don't give them the weapon. So this is why, and this is really significant for the all times. That's why Jesus is saying it 2,000 years ago, which includes right now the world in which we live. Do I have to? All right, we'll use John as an example. John works for a big company. And John has to attend a lot of uh, um, corporate communication events where there's lots of talking and learning going on about the retraining his brain needs about how to understand reality and what's right and wrong. There are people in this world who will say what John needs to do because God's called him to be a light in the world and not hide his light under a bushel and he needs to be salt in the world and rub people the wrong way and add some spice and some flavor. And so John, on those calls, has to unmute himself and read the book of Leviticus. Because you people need some Leviticus up in here. Right? Now, is Leviticus true? Uh, yes. We need to be able to we need to be willing to suffer, bear our crosses, and die for the truth of Leviticus, just as the rest of Scripture. But what, what Jesus would say is, what are you doing? You're you're giving them my truth and you know that what they're going to do with my truth is to do violence to my truth. They're going to reject it. They're going to dismiss it. They're going to say the Bible can't be believed and don't you know history and all this. They're just going to reject the truth and do violence to it. And they're going to use that truth to do violence. You're gone. You have no more job here. Right now, do you sometimes, does God put you in a position where you have to stand for truth in a way that it costs you your job? Of course, that's part of Crossberg. But what Jesus is saying is, don't believe the people who tell you that's always the right answer. Don't believe the people who tell you that because it's true, I have to say it in this moment, even if I know what's going to happen in this moment is that God is going to do violence to the truth and it's going to be used to do violence to me. Right? There are lots of questions that we don't have to answer. Look at how many times Jesus is asked a question in the New Testament where the question is a trap and he does not answer it. And what he's saying to us is that's being wise. That's being clever as serpents and innocent as doves. But it's saying, no, you're going to take the truth and use it in the service of falsehood. 
I don't participate in that. So I will not give you what is holy, because truth is holy. And what you're going to do is an unholy thing with it. Originally, you spoke of this passage as having to do with unbelievers. But it sounds like there's a category for people who call themselves Christians. So there's an application, there's a very clear application for unbelievers, those who would do wickedness with the truth of God. Therefore, there's also a reasonable extrapolation for the weaker brother, for Christians who haven't been thoughtful about a particular issue, for all of us. There are moments where all of us, overwhelmed by our own sin in a moment, whether that's anger or shame or pride, would do bad things with the truth. And so, yes, you can extrapolate that out to how you treat believers in certain circumstances. What Jesus is specifically talking about here are the religious hypocrites who think they have everything right and everybody else has everything wrong. And that's why they're going to go around and beat them with truth. And then the, the disciples' instincts, probably like all of us, would be, we got to go up to these Pharisees and we, we got to tell them some things. And Jesus says, you're, you're wasting your time. In fact... If you do that, you're going to do more disservice. That's why Jesus didn't speak clearly in answering the Pharisees' questions. That's why he answered their questions with questions. It's why he rejected all of their accusations and shifted the conversation. Because if he had told them the nuanced theological truth that explained why they were in the wrong and he was in the right, were they going to receive that truth? No, they were going to do violence to the truth and then do violence to him, which they ultimately did. So if John's boss said, John... Don't you agree that the wedding of Tom and Steve was bright, good, and beautiful? I don't agree, but I'm thankful to live in a country where my morals and faith aren't don't dictate everyone else's behavior. That, I mean, y'all are all put in this tough situation too, right? When you've got friends that are doing things that are immoral and they want your approval. Matthew 9. 14, I think that's me. 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. There is a, a lot of there are a lot of questions among Christians about fasting, the role that fasting plays in the Christian life now. And so, what do we take away from what the Bible teaches about fasting, and how do we use or not use fasting in our lives? Um, a couple important things, just to get out at a high level. In Scripture, there's always a link between fasting and prayer. So whatever we say about fasting, it is key that the goal of fasting big picture is that it be connected to prayer uh, and have an impact on our prayer lives. And some of that's understandable physiologically, just in terms of our bodies. If, if the point of prayer is to change us, to make us more accepting of our dependence upon God, more aware of our dependence upon God, if our bodies are crying out for food, I cannot make myself not hungry. Everybody 
accept that. You can think as much as you want. You can do whatever you want to do. You do not have the power to make yourself not hungry. Something has to come from outside of you, food, and come into you and make you not hungry. So it is with prayer. All the other things you need to do, you can't fix them. And so prayer is saying, God, I need you to act on me and in me and in this world around me so that I can do the things that I need to do. I need your grace in every situation. I cannot rely on myself. It won't work. So as you fast, you're painting a picture physically with your body and with your feelings within your body of hunger of the spiritual point that you should be trying to make in prayer. Um, Fasting is not done. Let me quote John Piper for a minute. He says, fasting is not first offered to God that we might be paid back because of it. It is first given by God that we might benefit from it and that he might be glorified through it. So Piper's saying, you don't bind God to any outcome. Fasting is not what you do when you want to pray something, but you really want to make sure that prayer gets answered. Right, God, I'm going to up the ante here. I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to pray, but I'm going to fast and pray. And then you're really going to have to answer this one. Won't work. Will backfire. Do not try this. Uh, save yourself the effort. Fasting is an act of longing and desire for a fuller sense of God's power and presence. It focuses the mind. Um, so what do we take away from fasting? I, I think it's clear that fasting in the new covenant is not required by God. It's not required uh, in the same way that Old Testament feasts are not required, in the same way that tithing, giving the 10% off the top, is not required by God in the New Testament. It's not an obligation there. But fasting does, from when it was required, just like the feasts from when they were required, just like the tithe from when it was required, paint a very helpful illustrative picture of things you can do that will assist you in your worship and your walk and growth in Christ. And so fasting can be very useful for us. It can be an act of humility where we acknowledge our need to subdue the appetites of the flesh and focus more intently on God. Fasting can also be a helpful exercise in the development of self-control. We live in a world where self-control is, uh, is not treated like the muscle that it is that has to be exercised and practiced or it wastes away. Self-control, you adults, I know have experienced this in your life, uh, but kids, it's, it's hard to understand. Self-control um, does not exist in little silos in your life. So you will not find people who have uh, self-control with respect to food, self-control with respect to temper, self-control with respect to lust, but absolutely no self-control when it comes to duty. Do we struggle more or less with different areas? Sure. But if you give yourself over to a lack of self-control in one area of life, it will cut through all of them. It will cut through all of them. Because self-control is a muscle. It's a discipline that stretches across all of life. It's not something that exists in a silo. And so fasting can be a great way for us to focus on our ability to exercise self-control, to exercise that muscle, to get some practice. Uh, Is there anything wrong with food? No, there's nothing wrong with food at all. But the exercise of practicing saying no, (laughs) saying no to something that I want. 
and then saying no to something that I really, really want, and then saying no to something that I've now convinced myself I'm going to die if I don't have. (laughs) That is a good discipline to build. Um, Fasting creates spiritual seriousness. Nothing magical about it, but it is a physical investment in spiritual battles. It's like prayer. We can be committed to prayer without putting a lot of time into it. But are you really committed to prayer? If you're really committed to prayer, it's going to take up some chunk of time on your calendar including some time where you're sitting there and this time you set aside for prayer, saying to yourself, I have no idea what I'm praying for or what I should be praying for or what I'm doing here. It feels like I should go do something more productive. But the discipline of, no, I'm going to stay here in prayer. Well, fasting can help us with that. It just is a physical investment, just like time is in a spiritual battle.